This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. It's Zoomer Radio's Theater of the Mind with Frank Proctor. Open your mind as we fill your head with amazing thrills, chills, <laughs> and laughs. Theater of the Mind, the best love programs from radio's golden age, only on Zoomer Radio. Now, here is your master storyteller, Frank Proctor. Well, thank you, and welcome to the show. Tonight, we start out by not shining a light into dark corners, but quite the reverse. We'll turn that around and bring you a little darkness in the form of a radio show that gained huge audiences in the early 1950s. I'm referring to Dimension X. It was a science fiction old-time radio series that ran from April of 1950 to September of 1951. Now, if there's any one genre that was shortchanged during the golden age of radio, it was science fiction. Well, at least adult sci-fi. But on the right side, most of the adult version of sci-fi old-time radio shows were very good. Dimension X, no exception. It ran on the NBC network, and it was a sustained series, meaning it didn't have a main sponsor. What it did have was outstanding scripts from famous offers. Uh, well, people like Ernest Canoy. Uh, Robert Heinlein, Kurt Vonnegut, and Isaac Asimov. Dimension X episodes were a mixture of interplanetary exploration and adventure, as well as some ground-based sci-fi. And remember, these were the days when sending a man to the moon was considered science fiction. So let's go back to those early days, settle back, and get ready for Dimension X and Dr. Grimshaw's Sanatorium. Adventures in Time and Space, told in future tense. Dimension What you will hear transcribed in the next half hour represents either a magnificent hoax or the true explanation of the famous Grimshaw Sanatorium scandal which made the headlines back in 1947. The manuscript upon which this account is based was removed by the New York State Police from a fountain pen cover found in the doorway to Dr. Grimshaw's study. We offer this manuscript as evidence only. Whether it is authentic or not, you must judge for yourself. My name is John Doherty. I'm a graduate of Hamilton College, class of 34, member of Theta Alpha. I'm one of those fools who wanted some excitement in life. So instead of going into my father's shoe business, I became a private detective. These are facts. You can check them if you like. The rest of what I write here is so fantastic that I don't expect it to be believed. If anyone should find this manuscript and read it, all I ask is that you notify Miss Millicent Armbruster of 299 Wallace Avenue, Buffalo, that Johnny Doherty is dead. On the evening of July 1st, Miss Armbruster and I were driving to a wedding. Not our own, though I wish it had been. 
It was Sunday, and in order to avoid traffic, I took the old mill road, single-lane dirt affair that runs past the Gowanda Cemetery. Hey, Johnny, aren't you going too fast? Uh-huh, not for this road. There isn't a thing around except some tombstones. But Johnny, there's a gate to the cemetery. What about that hearse? I don't see hey, any... Johnny, look out! Hey. Look out! Ah! It was a big black hearse with no lights on, pulling out of the cemetery. Lucky I had good brakes. We skidded for about 20 feet and slammed into the back of the hearse. The two rear doors buckled and snapped open. It was a freak. A huge oak coffin with brass handles tipped up and began slowly to slide back toward us. Oh, Johnny, look. The coffin is sliding out. Holy You stay right here, honey. I'll help the driver with that thing. Hey, you okay, Mac? You don't pay much attention to speed limits, do you, Jack? Now, look, let's not get hung up on who was right and who was wrong. I was going too fast, and you were traveling without lights after dark. Main thing is, nobody's hurt and no damage done, except for that coffin. And I don't suppose the occupant minds too much. Let's see the driver's license and registration. Right here. Hmm. John Darley. Oh, a private eye, huh? You listen to the radio too much, Junior. Now, if you don't mind, who does this joy wagon belong to? Go on the funeral service. It's being rented to Grimshaw. Who? Grimshaw from the private sanatorium. You mind if I ask what you were doing after dark coming out of a cemetery with a wooden kimono? We're moving one of Grimshaw's patients to a new grave. Uh-huh. Do they always travel like this? Now, look, Hawkshaw, how about skipping the third degree and giving me a hand getting the box back in the wagon, huh? The pleasure. Better screw on the cover again. It's going to slide off. Well, let's get it in the hearse first. Okay, Junior. You get on that end. Ready? Live. Just slide it, brother. Who's in there, King Kong? Look out for the cover. Hey. Uh, I told you that it happened. Hey, uh, uh, what's the guy's name, Junior? Why don't you ask him? Real wise guy, huh? I've got half a mind to report this accident. Yeah, go ahead. See what gets you. Grimshaw's got a lot of influence around here, mister. A lot of influence. Now, if you'll pardon me, I'll deliver the body. So long, Junior. Johnny? Johnny? I'm coming, honey. Everything all right, Johnny? Well, I thought so until a few seconds ago. Uh, listen, baby, c- can you sit here in the car for another five minutes? Oh, we're due at the wedding in half an hour. I won't be long. Where are you going? For a stroll through the cemetery. Oh, hey, Johnny, stop making jokes. Honey, when we lifted that coffin back on a meat wagon, I got a good look inside of it. Oh. Exactly how I felt. I figured we'd knock the stuffing out of the corpse. Only I didn't expect the stuffing to be sand. What? Yes. It wasn't a body. It was a dummy stuffed with sand, a dummy with a wax face. Johnny! Which brings up an interesting question. Who's supposed to be in that box? And, uh, just where is the dead man spending his time? Sometimes in my business, when things drop off, you have to go out and uh, dig up new clients. Well, my next case was a gentleman named Harlan Ward, Sr., the wealthy automobile manufacturer. I had gotten his name off his son's tombstone. Are you trying to tell me, Dorothy, 
That my son Harlan was never buried at Kuanda Cemetery? Exactly, Mr. Ward. Why? Maybe if you'll tell me the circumstances surrounding your son's death, I can help answer that. My son was a rather impetuous young man. Tall, good-looking. After his graduation from Princeton, he began drinking quite heavily. After he got into a couple of scrapes, we sent him to Dr. Grimshaw's sanatorium in the hope that he could be cured. While my wife and I were in Europe... We received word that he had died. He was buried at Gowanda in our absence. Last week, my wife and I decided to have his body removed to the family vault here at Short Hills. How did your son die, Mr. Ward? Suicide. He slashed his wrists at the sanatorium. You never saw the body? No. We couldn't get back from Europe in time. I see. See here. How do I know this whole thing isn't a plan to fleece me? How do I know that you didn't remove the body yourself? You don't. But you're a rich man, Mr. Ward, and you're perfectly willing to take a chance that I'm on the level and that your son may still be alive. You sound very sure of yourself, Mr. Dorothy. My fee is $2,000 retainer plus expenses. What sort of expenses? However much it costs to take the cure at Dr. Grimshaw's sanatorium. What do you say, Mr. Ward? All right, Dorothy. My secretary will send you a check in the morning. Good. Oh, uh, one other thing. What's that? I want a photograph of your son, a good one. I think that can be arranged. Look here, Dorothy. If I cooperate, how do I know that you won't run off? I won't guarantee it. On the other hand, I might have to get myself killed on this job. We both take a risk, Mr. Ward. <laughs> Dr. Grimshaw's sanatorium was just outside Gowanda, and it was strictly for the 400 at $60 a day. Most of the cases were nervous breakdowns and alcoholics. I committed myself as a dipso, and just to make it convincing, I stopped at five or six bars on the way over. I was interviewed by Grimshaw himself, a small man with a fringe of white hair. He seemed on the level. And yet, there was something just the slightest bit phony about the whole deal. You, uh, understand, Mr. Doherty... Uh, that's not my real name, of course. Social reasons. Mm. We understand. Our paid clientele is very select. Our rates are rather high. You'll be paid in cash and in advance, Dr. Grimshaw. You'll find us most sympathetic. Um, how long does a cure usually take, Doctor? Well, that, of course, depends on the degree of alcoholism. This is my assistant, Dr. Boyneau. How do you do? How do you do? We are accepting Mr. Doherty as a patient. Better place him in the ward with Mr. Kay and Mr. Crakey. Mr. Kay is a long-term patient, Mr. Doherty. Highly intelligent man, formerly a professor of plant pathology. Mr. Crakey suffers mild delusions. I think you'll find him rather amusing. After about three days, my roommates, Arthur Kay and Craigie, got used to me, and we even began to play three-handed bridge. Kay was a chronic dope addict, an intelligent, sensitive man. Craigie was nothing but a clown. He kept a big black cat named the Professor, which he talked to as if it were human. And so I said to her, my dear Countess, if you don't like the company of my cat, then you don't like me. She looked at me as if I were insane, but of course the joke was on her because I was. <laughs> a Professor? You'll have to forgive Count Crakey, Mr. Doherty. When you've been here as long as I have, you'll get used to him. Do you like cats, Mr. Doherty? I do hope you like cats since we are to have adjoining rooms. The professor is very sociable and excellent company. Except when he kills birds and deposits them in your bed. 
He's nothing but a feline murderer, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> ah, see? You have insulted him. <laughs> Come here, Professor. Let's make friends. Uh, how about giving me your paw? <laughs> Catch me, you black devil. You insulted him. You hurt his feelings. Well, keep him away from me. It will be a pleasure. I would advise you not to insult him again. Count Craigie is not altogether without influence here, as Mr. Cable informed you. Good afternoon. And evening. <laughs> is he always as nuts as that? Ever since I've been here. Why did they let him keep that black Satan? I don't know. I suppose Grimshaw wants to pamper him. He's been here since they opened the place, I understand. Spends about three hours a day getting therapy from Grimshaw. What's his problem? Manic depressive. A little paranoid, too. Mm. How long have you been here, Arthur? Grimshaw's two years. I left for a while, but I couldn't stay away from the junk, so I committed myself again. Did you uh, happen to know a patient here named Harlan Ward? Why do you ask that? Do you know him? Oh, I met him, met him socially a few times. Uh, I understand he died here. So the newspapers said I wouldn't know. Suicide, wasn't it? Was it? You're being pretty careful, aren't you? Mr. Doherty, what would you say if I were to tell you that I don't believe Harlan Ward is dead? What makes you so certain? Harlan Ward used to share this room with us. He slept in the same bed you now use. I see. He was an alcoholic. Doing quite well, too, from what I could observe. We all expected him to go home soon. Then one evening, he had a violent fight with Craigie. Craigie accused him of snooping or something. Later that night, Grimshaw and Boyner took him out. Where? They take all the special treatment cases to the charity clinic. It's that small building on the other side of the stone wall. I think they do their surgery cases there. Why did they take him there? I don't know. Confinement, I guess. A few days later, we read about his death. Suicide, they said. Why do you think he's still alive, Arthur? This. About a month ago, I was in the garden next to the wall that separates us from the charity clinic. Suddenly, I thought I heard a sound like a child whimpering. It stopped. A moment later, this note came over the wall wrapped around a stone. Then I'm certain I heard a blow and a scream again like a child. What does the note say? Help me, for God's sake, Harlan Ward. I haven't told anyone yet for fear Grimshaw and Boyner might find out. It might just be some insane prank by one of the charity cases. And yet, why should Dr. Grimshaw want to pretend Harlan Ward is dead? I'm not an oracle, Mr. Doherty. What about this charity clinic? I've always been curious. Grimshaw and Boyner make sure that no patient goes there unsupervised. Many of those who've been taken across like Harlan Ward, I've never seen again. Arthur, how'd you like to have some fun? Like what? Like sneaking out tonight and going over the wall. What do you say? It'd break the monotony a little. I don't know. If there's something fishy going on, it'd be better to find out now, wouldn't it? I suppose there's no real harm in it. Of course not. I I'd go alone, but I'll need help scaling that wall. Will you do it? All right. I'll go with you. It was shortly after midnight when Kay and I slipped out of the room and made our way out to the garden. Count Crakey was snoring soundly when we left. The wall was about eight feet high, but we made it without too much trouble. Hunt! All clear. Give me your hand and I'll let you... Now, be careful when you drop. Ready? Go ahead. There's a charity building over there. One of the lights in the basement window. Come on. 
We'll make a run across the driveway and hide in that clump of bushes alongside the building. Ready? All right. Hey, hold it. Drop flat. What's the matter? Let's crawl over toward the window with the light. Maybe we can see something. I suppose you've got the shots. Listen. Take it easy. Sounds like Grimshaw. Let's get closer. Can you make out what he's saying? No, no. Good Lord. What was that? Probably some patient having the DTs. I think it came from that basement window. Let's get over there where I can have a look. Easy. What do I do to get caught now? Just see anything? Relax. It's some sort of laboratory. That's right. I can see Grimshaw, Voina, and someone else with its back toward me. If we're still, we may make out what they're saying. Take it quietly. It will be easier. I warn you. It will all be over soon. You won't remember anything. No, I don't want to go. Boyner, give it to him. No, no, no. Shut him up, Boyner. Good Lord. What is it? Come on. We've got to get out of here. What did you see? What did they do to that child? Arthur, that wasn't a child. It was a midget. The smallest midget I've ever seen. What were they doing? Trying to give it some sort of injection. When it resisted, Boyner knocked it out. Well, what do you suppose they were doing to it? I don't know, Arthur. All I know is that when it fell, it had the face of Harlan Ward. All the way back to our room, my brain was working like a pinball machine. Only the score wouldn't add up. The, the pieces were there, all right. A crazy old doctor, a brutal assistant, a private sanatorium, and a midget with a dead man's face. And I couldn't figure it out. I thought that when I got back to our room, I'd have some time to think about it. But I'd forgotten about our friend, the happiness boy, Count Craigie. Ah! So I've caught you! Fine. So you've caught us. Now, how about crawling back into the woodwork like a good little count? Well, where are you? Mink hunting. Arthur and I like to go mink hunting at night. Funny thing, though, the mink weren't running very good. The grunion were running like crazy, though, weren't they, Arthur? Quite crazy, Mr. Doherty. You make fun of Count Craigie. You're lying. I shall report you to Dr. Voina. Better not, if you know what's good for you. So you threaten me. Me, Count Craigie, world's champion gymnast and barbell balancer. I shall scream for help. Help! Help! You heard him? Just knocked him out. What do we do now? Put him to bed. Hope that when he wakes up in the morning, he's forgotten the whole thing. And if he hasn't? They won't take him seriously anyway. I don't think Grimshaw would believe him. Besides which, he doesn't know what we actually were doing. Come on. Let's get him back into bed. I went to sleep in my own room. And the next thing I felt was the sharp jab of the hypodermic needle in my left arm. I started to struggle, but it was no use. Take it. Boyner and another assistant were holding me down. Grimshaw stood over me, the empty needle still in his hand. That's it. <laughs> Be useless to struggle, Mr. Doherty. In a moment, your motor nerves will be completely paralyzed. What's this about, Grimshaw? I might ask the same of you. My good friend Count Crakey informs me you and Mr. K decided to do some snooping earlier tonight. He followed you and saw you climb the wall. Crakey's insane. That is a matter of opinion, Mr. Doherty. Crakey, what is this? Perhaps my assistant, Dr. Grimshaw, would be good enough to explain. Assistant? Yes. 
You see, I am the actual head of the Grimshaw Sanatorium. Grimshaw? Count Crakey feigns many delusions, Mr. Doherty, but in this case he's telling the truth. Count Crakey is actually Professor Ernst Hassler. Professor Hassler and I worked together in the Berlin Neurological Institute before the last war. Unfortunately, my political affiliations with the Third Reich were under investigation after the war by the War Crimes Commission. However, Dr. Grimshaw managed to smuggle me into this country where I masquerade as a mental patient. Thus, we are able to continue certain experiments which were interrupted by the American army. I can imagine the sort of experiments you conducted. You and your friend, Mr. K, will discover their exact nature very shortly, Mr. Doherty. It's a magnificent opportunity to serve science. <laughs> Then I passed out. And the next thing I knew, I was coming to in a different room. I guessed it was somewhere in the charity building because of the angle of the sun through the windows. They had me in a straitjacket and kept doping me until I lost count of time. I, I don't know how long it kept up. I remember one day being wheeled along a corridor into an operating room and hearing the voices of Boyner, Grimshaw, and Crakey as if from a great distance. Pituitrin. Pituitrin. Four cc's. Four cc's. How are the measurements? Reducing rapidly. We'll operate at once. If one has start the anesthesia. All right, doctor. Commence. When I came to again, I had a blinding headache. And after that wore off a horrible sensation of weakness. I began to wonder if Craigie and Grimshaw weren't doing something to drive me insane because I lost all sense of perspective. The room seemed to grow in size. I don't know how much time passed, but one day Grimshaw came into the room with a bundle in his arms about the size of a newborn baby. The bundle was my friend, Arthur Kay. Good morning, Mr. Doherty. I've brought you a companion. I'm sure you two gentlemen will enjoy each other's company. Let me out of here. Let me out. I couldn't believe my eyes until Grimshaw sat Arthur down on the bed beside me. It was then that I got the real shock. For I realized that what had looked like a tiny bundle in Grimshaw's arms was actually the same size that I was. Then, for the first time, I began to understand what was happening to us. Arthur Kay and I were being made into midgets. We got the full explanation next morning when the eminent Professor Hassler, alias Count Crakey, came in to gloat over us. Allow me to congratulate you, gentlemen. How are you feeling? You stinking monster! Oh, I'm disappointed, gentlemen. Do you not feel privileged to be a part of an experiment that will place me at the very top rank of the world's endocrinologists? What are you doing to us? It has been long established, gentlemen, that dwarfism and giantism result from injury to or malfunction of the pituitary and thyroid glands. The interlock between these glands was thought to be a hormone. I have discovered that this was incorrect. It is an enzyme, an enzyme I isolated some years ago. I was well on the way to synthesis in Germany when the surrender interrupted me. The interruption also limited the number and type of subjects on whom I could experiment. I was forced to find others. Such as Harlan Ward? Mr. Ward was only a control experiment. And now you've done the same to us? No, gentlemen. For you, I have reserved a special privilege. You, gentlemen, will be the first to test the full effects of the enzyme. In short, I intend that you, Mr. K, and you, Mr. Doherty, when the experiment is completed, will emerge as perfectly healthy, normal individuals. Except, of course, that you will be only five inches tall. 
days and nights that followed were a living nightmare. A nightmare from which Arthur and I awoke for brief periods to find ourselves in a strange new world. A huge, frightening world where everything was enlarged a hundred times. When we finally emerged, we found ourselves imprisoned in a tiny mouse cage. Judging by the relative size of things, we could not have been more than five inches tall. Now that our senses cleared, we realized that the experiment was at an end. That from now on, it was either escape or be destroyed. Another moment. I think I'll have this lock worked loose. And if we escape, then what? We'll worry about that after we get out of this mouse cage. Suppose we don't make it. At least you've written the story on that scrap of paper. Someone may find it and read it. Nobody will believe it. Why'd you bother to write it? I don't know. I, I suppose I want the world to know what happened to me. I, does it help me push the door open? <laughs> now what? First job's getting down to the floor. I think we can make it by sliding down the telephone cord. Are you game? Go ahead. I'm right behind you. Easy now. Look out. That does it. Now if we can figure out a way to get out of the room. That should be... Uh-oh. Listen. Somebody's coming. It must be Craigie. We've got to hide. There's the grate in the fireplace. He'll kill us if he finds us. Shh. Stay quiet. Well, my friends. Time for feeding. I trust that you... So, you have managed to break out. It won't do, you know. There is no way you could have gotten out of the room with the door and window locked. I know you're in here. I would advise you to save yourselves trouble and give up. No? Perhaps you are in the desk drawer. Or behind this decanter. Then perhaps in this cabinet. Very well. I shall count to five. One, two, three, four, five. You will not get off, eh? Very well, my tiny friends. If you prefer to play the game of cat and mouse, then I shall be happy to earn it. How long do you figure it'll take him to get downstairs and let the cat into the building? Three minutes at most. Then we've got three minutes to get out. How? All the doors in the mental institution locked from the outside. We need a special key to get out, and then we couldn't reach the lock. I don't know. There must be... Wait a minute. What is it? John, what? Do you see that thin strand of wire running along the molding? What about it? you know what it is? No. It's the automatic fire alarm. What about it? When the alarm is tripped by a fire, all the locks are sprung so the patients can escape in their rooms. Are you certain? Positive. This door is part of the system. If I can work the insulation off that wire and short it before Craigie lets the can in the building, let's go. Here's a tiny sliver of steel from the cage on the floor. I'll work with that. You keep an ear to the door. Go ahead. This insulation is tough as raw hide. How much time is it? Not much. Stop. Here, let me help. What was that? What? I, I thought I heard a door slam. Mike, you couldn't be back so soon. Hurry up, Arthur, for God's sake. There, that way. We're going to short it. Ready? Okay. We made it. There goes the door. Come on, we'll make a run for it down the hall. If we can get to the garden, we've got a chance. I smell smoke. The short may have actually started the fire. Come on. Oh, wait a minute. What's up? I have to go back. The, the manuscript. Don't be a fool. There's no time. Come on. You go ahead. I, I'll catch up. Hurry up. I'll wait in the hall. Only a second. I've got it. Come on. There's nothing to stop us now. Arthur, where are you? 
this is the record found in a fountain pen cover in the burned-out hallway of Grimshaw's sanatorium. There is nothing to add, except that the fire which destroyed the sanatorium and killed so many of its occupants, including Dr. Grimshaw and Dr. Voina, was definitely of incendiary origin. It is believed by the fire chief that some small creature, either a mouse or possibly a cat, chewed the insulation off the wire and short-circuited the system. The two patients, John Doherty and Arthur Kay, vanished completely after the fire, and their remains were never found. Whether the manuscript which you have just heard is authentic, or whether it was the work of one of the more demented inmates of the sanatorium, we leave to your judgment. You have just heard another adventure into the unknown world of the future. The world of... Dimension X. Next week on Dimension X, and the moon be still as bright. The story of the first despoilers of the planet Mars... The men from Earth. Tonight, Dimension X has transcribed Dr. Grimshaw's Sanatorium. Adapted for radio by George Lefferts from an original short story by Fletcher Pratt. Featured in the cast were Carl Weber as John Doherty and Roger DeCoven as Arthur Kay. Your narrator was Norman Rose. Music by Albert Berman. Engineer Bill Chambers. Dimension X is directed by Edward King. Stay tuned for Robert Young on Father Knows Best. Next on Theater of the Mind. You're listening to Theater of the Mind on Zoomer Radio, AM 740 and 96.7 FM in downtown Toronto. Father Knows Best is next, starring Robert Young. Of course, many will remember him from the TV show Dr. Marcus Welby, and of course, as Jim Anderson, the father character in Father Knows Best. Do you know he appeared in over a hundred films between 1931 and 52? After appearing on stage, he was signed with Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer, and in spite of having a Tier B status, he co-starred with some of the studio's most illustrious actresses, such as Catherine Hepburn, Norma Shearer, and Helen Hayes, to name but a few. Yet most of his assignments consisted of B-movies, also known as programmers, which required two to three weeks of shooting, considered very brief shooting periods at the time. Actors who were relegated to such a hectic schedule appeared, as Young did, in some six to eight movies per year. Despite his trademark portrayal of a happy, well-adjusted character, Young's bitterness toward Hollywood Casting practices never diminished, and he suffered from depression and alcoholism, culminating in a suicide attempt in January of 1991. Later, he spoke candidly about his personal problems in an effort to encourage others to seek help. But let's hear him in happier times, at least on radio, in the episode, An Efficient House. Mother, is Maxwell House really the only coffee in the world? Well, your father says so, and your father knows best. 
Yes, it's Father Knows Best, transcribed in Hollywood, starring Robert Young as father. A half-hour visit with your neighbors, the Andersons. Brought to you by America's favorite coffee, Maxwell House. The coffee that's always good to the last drop. If an arrow rises, it must fall. If a river flows, it must bend. And be they long or be they small, all vacations have an end. In Springfield, which is still an average town, live the Andersons, just an average American family with the average American trials and tribulations. Their car is rolling rapidly toward the white frame house on Maple Street. And as they return from a long summer holiday at Round Lake, it might be interesting to note the thoughts which occupy their minds. For instance, there's Kathy, aged nine. Gee whiz, next week we have to go back to school. Bud, who is 15. Gosh, next week we have to go back to school. And Betty, who is a very adult 17. Jumping creepers, next week we have to go back to school. Then, of course, there's Margaret, the mother of the brood. Next week, the children go back to school. <laughs> and last, but by no means least, father himself, Jim Anderson. Well, it won't be long now. Here's Maple. There's Jimmy Woody. Jimmy! Sit down, will ya? Bud, stop pushing. I'm not pushing. Kathy's standing on my foot. Kathleen, sit still and behave yourself. I was saying hello to Jimmy. There'll be plenty of time for that. Jim. Hmm? Are you sure everything's all right at the house? Of course everything's all right. Why? Well, you look just like a boy with his hand in the jam pot. And if you've done anything... Susie! Yoo-hoo! Susie! Oh! Kathy, sit down. That was Susie. Well, you don't have to jump out the window. Look what she did to my shoe. I did not. You certainly did. I certainly didn't. You certainly did. I certainly didn't. <laughs> Kathy, will you please stop screeching in my ear? I wasn't screeching in your ear. You certainly were. I certainly wasn't. <laughs> all right, all right. That's enough. Well, she said I was screeching in her ear. I said that's enough. And I wasn't. Hey, there's the house Well, that's a relief What do you mean by that? Oh, nothing It's just that when you get that peculiar look on your face I never know what to expect I thought maybe you had the house painted purple or something Now, see here, Margaret Jim, I know you mean well But whenever the children and I go away You get such weird ideas about the house Oh, like the barbecue pit I built last summer I suppose that was a weird idea no, it was fine, until it fell apart. <laughs> How about the year you decided to turn the playroom into a bowling alley? Never mind. <laughs> or the year you painted the living room green and Mom had to send all the... I said never mind. <laughs> oh, gosh, I was only trying to help. <laughs> Kathleen, right after dinner, you go to bed. But I didn't say anything. <laughs> I know just what you were thinking, and I won't stand for it. But I wasn't thinking about the fire alarm you built in the oven. Kathy! <laughs> but I wasn't! Well, don't just sit there, bud. We're home. Let's get the luggage into the house. Okay, Dad. A man takes a little extra pride in his home, and what happens? 
People make fun of him. Treat him like the village idiot. Oh, Jim, we weren't making fun of you. You certainly were. You thought I was going to paint the house purple. <laughs> no, I didn't, dear. I merely said, Joe. Hey, Joe. Bud, come back here. Where do you think you're going? I just saw Joe Phillips. Well, take a look at the suitcases. They come first. Holy cow. <laughs> Kathy? Yes, Daddy? That is not where we live. This is our house, the white one. You can see Patty in the morning, dear. Right now, we've all got to help your father. Gee whiz. Well, I guess that's about everything. Uh, Jim. Margaret, there's nothing to worry about. I haven't done anything to the house. Nothing much, anyway. Oh, dear. Kathy, push the water bottle under my chin. It's slipping. Want me to carry it? Just push it over a little. Oh, why can't I carry it? Kathy! It broke. <laughs> I don't know. People go away all the time and come home all the time. They don't get into things like this. Only this family. If we so much as go across the street... Dad, these bags are getting heavy. Well, put them down. Don't you want me to take them inside? Naturally, I want you to take them inside. How can I take them inside if I put them down? <laughs> Margaret. It's all right, dear. I have my keys. Oh. There we are. Kathy, hold the screen door open until we get in. Yes, Daddy. See if you can manage not to break it. Well, how can you break a screen door? I don't know, but don't try to find out. <laughs> all right, bud, let's go. Oh, I, I don't think I can make it. This little bag feels like it's got rocks in it. Kathy, what have you got in your suitcase? Rocks. Rocks? Special rocks. I'm saving them. Gee, gods, we haven't got enough rocks in Springfield. She has to bring a suitcase full of them back from Round Lake. <laughs> but they're all different colors. Uh, Bud, take them out in back of the garage and dump them. Okay. But it's practically a collection. I saved them all summer. Well, dump them carefully, Bud. <laughs> okay. And don't break them. Mother, my arms are falling off. All right, dear, we're going right in. Now, let me get this bag through the door, will you? Yeah, that's a good girl. <sighs> oh, well, we're home. How does it look? It looks wonderful. Simply wonderful. I had Mrs. Nielsen come in last Friday and give it a good cleaning. Oh, that was very thoughtful. I don't see anything different. Do you, Mother? No, dear. Everything looks just the way it should. Phew. Gosh, these coats are heavy. Oh, Betty, you can't just dump them in a chair like that. You know where they belong. Okay, I'll hang them up. Uh, just a minute, Betty. I, uh, I've made a few little changes around the house. Just minor changes. Jim? Well, it's something I've had in mind for quite a few years. You see, the way I figure, there isn't much difference between a home and an office, so far as efficiency is concerned, anyway. Jim, a home isn't like an office. You can't run them the same way. Of course you can. And wait till you see what I've done. Everything's neat and tidy and orderly, the way things ought to be. I hope you know what you're doing. All right, Betty, put the coats in the closet before they get all wrinkled. Okie doke. And then see what happened to Bud and Kathy. If nothing has, do you mind if I arrange something? Stop talking and do as you're told. Yes, Father. That girl can talk more and say less than any ten people in Springfield. Jim. And she certainly doesn't get it from my side of the family, I'll tell you that. Jim. I've never heard anyone talk so much in my entire life. 
All the way down from Round Lake. Talk, talk, talk. Jim? Oh, silent one. <laughs> yeah? Do you mind if I say something? Of course not. You know that's a ridiculous question. Well, I have another ridiculous question. What have you done to the house? I've instituted a little system, that's all, and it's about time. There certainly are. They're in the box. The hangers are in a box? That's right. There's nothing that looks sillier than a bunch of empty coat hangers. <laughs> Besides, they don't do anything but catch dust. What box? The box under the box with the galoshes. Jim, it's taken me 15 years to train the children to hang up their coats. And now you've hidden the hangers. No, I haven't. I put them where they belong. It's part of the system. You haven't... Rearrange the entire house that way. Have you? Uh, more or less. Oh, Jim. Now, don't get upset, Margaret. The least you can do is give the system a chance. But if you aren't home, we'll never be able to find anything. Yes, you will. I spent a whole week making a catalog. <laughs> Everything is entered in its proper place. Dishes, silver, linen. Everything's been put away systematically... And entered in the catalog. Jim Anderson, do you mean that in order to find a plate in the cupboard, I've got to look it up in a catalog? <laughs> That's right, under C. C? Dishes under C? I filed them under China. <laughs> that is the most ridiculous thing I ever heard. It isn't ridiculous at all. You've been complaining for years that you haven't had enough closets. Well, when I got through rearranging things, I had two closets left over. <laughs> I'm not going to say a thing, not a single thing. This moment, I don't dare. Father, the door to the basement's locked and there isn't any key. The key is where it belongs with all the other keys. They're all tagged, labeled, and filed very systematically. Where? Margaret, I wish you'd stop looking at me that way. I was merely trying to be helpful. I know it isn't easy to get used to a new system, but you will. Hey, Dad. I want to give it to him. Here's a letter for you, Dad. Oh, oh. It was special delivery, and I signed for it. It's on the bank. So I see. Where do you think a bank would be if they didn't have a system? They'd be broke in a week. We're not running a bank. No? Well, when some of the bills come in from the department stores... No, it's impossible. What's the matter, Father? Is something wrong, dear? I'm not overdrawn. How could I possibly be overdrawn? Well, they have a system. Margaret, this is not a joking matter. The day I left for Round Lake, just a week ago Friday, I deposited over $700. How could I be overdrawn? Maybe their system didn't work. You're darn right it didn't work. Just as soon as I find my checkbook. Isn't it in the desk drawer? No, I, uh, put it someplace else. <laughs> Part of the reorganization? Yes, I put it in a much more logical place. A very logical place. Only I can't remember exactly where. <laughs> uh, why don't you look it up in the catalog? The, uh, catalog? Well, that's where you entered everything, isn't it? Well, you see, that's what I've been trying to tell you, Margaret. 
I was trying to get everything ready for you and the kids when you got home, and I had the catalog all finished and everything, but... Jim, you didn't. Uh-huh, I lost it. Oh, no! minutes later in the white frame house on Maple Street, and the future looks dismal and dark for the family known as Anderson. Father, with his brilliant new system, has disorganized the entire household. But it won't be for long. You know how it is with life. It's always darkest before the dawn. And though everything may seem quite grim at the moment, there's really no need to be concerned. Just hang around for a little while, and gradually things will get worse. They're in the basement. But the door's locked. I know. Jim, the first thing we've got to do is find the keys. We can't live in a house where everything is locked up. If I could only remember what I did with the catalog. I'll settle for the keys. Can't you remember where you put them? I put them in a drawer. Which drawer? I don't remember. <laughs> anyway, I locked the drawer, so what good would it do if I did remember? <laughs> You locked the drawer with all the keys in it? Well, naturally. Then I put that key uh, somewhere else. Where? Uh, in a towel. <laughs> I think it was a towel. Maybe it was a pillowcase. Jim. But it's all written down in the catalog. If we can find that, there'll be nothing to worry about. Except trying to get this house back in order again. Margaret, there's one thing you refuse to recognize. Doing it my way, I had two closets left over. And there's one thing you refuse to recognize. We have two trunks and five suitcases to unpack. How many closets do you think we'll have left over then? Oh, I guess I forgot about that. Well, anyway, I tried. I'm not worried about the closets. At least they're open. But all those locked drawers and missing keys, what are we going to do about them? We'll have to make a thorough search, that's all. Bud! He went out to get the rest of the luggage, dear. Anytime the doorbell rings, he manages to do something else. But you sent him for it. Well, how did I know the bell was going to ring? I haven't even been home 15 minutes. You'd think people would have the decency to let you get your hat off before they start ringing the doorbell. Jim, my boy! Oh, uh, hello, Mr. Gribble. Uh, come on in. I'm not uh, interrupting anything, am I? Oh, no. Uh, we were just sitting around playing a little game of button, button, who's got the button. Uh, yes <laughs> Jim, I've got news for you The most wonderful news you've ever heard It wouldn't have anything to do with a catalog, would it? Uh, what? Well, that's sort of a key subject around here right now uh, I see Who is it, Jim? Uh, it's Mr. Gribble, honey I can't stay very long Just stopped by on my way to the club Saw the car in the driveway, you know Oh, hello, Mrs. Anderson Nice to see you back Oh, it's nice to be back That is, it might be Sometime soon <laughs> yes 
Uh, there's no place like home, that's what I always say. Uh, the old familiar haunts with everything in its place and a place for everything. Isn't it the uh, truth? <laughs> yes. Uh, you said something about good news, J.P. Yes, I did. Oh, yes, I did, didn't I? Jim, my boy, I've done it. Yes, sir, after three years, I've finally done it. No. Yes. Well, that's great. Uh, what did you do? <laughs> Why, I've gotten the Springfield Athletic Club to open its membership list. Not far, mind you, just far enough to let you in. Now, what do you think of that? The Athletic Club? Oh, that's wonderful, J.P., it really is. Isn't it, Margaret? Oh, yes, I'm just goosebumps all over. <laughs> I'm finally going to get into the Athletic Club. Well, I've got to get down there right away, so if you'll just let me have a check for $125. A check? For your application, my boy. I want to get it in before they change their minds. You want me to give you a check? What's the matter with you, Jim? Don't you want to join? Oh, yes. I I wanted to join for the last five years. Well, then stop staring at me like a congenital moron and give me a check for $125. A check for $125. Mr. Gribble, we might as well tell you... I uh, left my checkbook at the office. That's what we wanted to say. Wasn't it, Margaret? I guess so, dear. If that's what you say. Well, there's nothing criminal about that. Of course not. I, um, I'll drop by the bank first thing in the morning, and then I'll leave a check at your office. How'll that be? Oh, that won't be necessary. It won't be any trouble, J.P. And uh, I don't think it's right for you to lay out all that money. Who said anything about that? <laughs> you bank with the merchants, don't you? Well, here's one of my blank checks. You can use that. Oh. Well, uh... uh... Is that you, Bud? I guess so. <laughs> well, come on in, Bud. Mr. Gribble's here. Uh, Jim, if you'll just make out a check for $125. I want you to meet Bud, J.P. He's a fine boy. I met your son when he was two years old. <laughs> now, if you'll just make out a check. Bud, uh, you know Mr. Gribble, don't you? Sure. How are you, Mr. Gribble? I'm beginning to wonder. <laughs> Jim, Mr. Gribble's a great baseball fan, Bud. Uh, why don't the two of you talk about baseball while I get on the phone? I don't know one end of a baseball bat from the other. All I want... Look, I'll make out the check, and all you have to do is sign it. How will that be? Oh, that'll be fine. Just fine. I've got all the bags in, Dad. Now can I go see Joe? No. I want you to stay here and... Uh, 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 why don't you get Mr. Gribble a drink? What kind of a drink? Well, any kind of a drink. Water, anything. I don't care. How about a nice glass of water, J.P.? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, no. Go ahead, bud. Get Mr. Gribble a glass of water. He doesn't want any. <laughs> we'll get it for him anyway. Holy cow. All right, Jim. It's made out. Now all you have to do is sign. Yes. Uh, uh, Betty, Kathy, Mr. Gribble is here. Jim, why don't you just tell him... Betty, Kathy, can't you hear me? What's the matter, Father? I just told you, Mr. Gribble is here. Well, don't you want to say hello? Hello, Mr. Gribble. Hello, Betty. How about Kathy? Hello, Mr. Gribble. Hello, Kathy. Friendly little group, aren't we? <laughs> Jim, why don't you come down and tell Mr. Gribble all about the nice summer you had? Jim, tell him all about it, one day at a time. Jim. We're trying to find the key. Never mind the key. Never mind, Mrs. Nielsen. Jim, Mr. Gribble... Never mind, Mr. Gribble. Where? 
Oh, I guess I'll be running along. No, wait. I uh, uh, haven't signed the check. Oh, you remember that. Jim, I'm sure Mr. Gribble Okay, would... I'll just sign it. Well, there you are, J.P., and thank you very much. Not at all. It'll be nice having you in the club. I imagine. <laughs> I'll uh, take you to the door. <laughs> Goodbye, Mrs. Anderson. Goodbye, Mr. Gribble. I'm sorry everything was so upset. That's quite all right. Quite all right. <clears throat> Jim, my boy. Yes, J.P.? Uh, when you uh, come down to the club, I, uh, I take things easy for a few weeks. Oh? You uh, seem to have been overdoing things a little. I know what you mean, J.P. I'll be careful. Yes. Well, uh, I'll be running along. Thanks again uh, for everything. Oh, not at all, my boy. Glad to help. Well, I've joined something. The Athletic Club or Leavenworth. One of the two. (laughs) Jim, what on earth were you trying to do? I don't know, Margaret. I thought if I could get Bill Morris on the phone about that deposit I made... But why didn't you tell Mr. Gribble the truth? I'm sure he'd have understood. I couldn't, Margaret. Would you trust all your insurance to a man who can't keep his bank account straight? I thought the bank made the mistake. They did. I mean, I think they did. I don't know. Here's the water, Dad. (laughs) What water? You said to get a glass of water for Mr. Gribble. Well, he's gone. What'll I do with the water? Drink it. I'm not thirsty. Then take it outside and water the lawn. With one glass? Jim, you're getting the boy all confused. Well, what do you think I am? No money, no catalog, no keys. Wait a minute. Now what? The middle drawer in my desk. That's where I put it. That's where you put what? I don't know. (laughs) But I distinctly remember putting something in it. The catalog. That's where it is. Come on. Jim. Once we get the catalog, everything will straighten out. We'll find the bank book and the keys and... Uh Uh-oh. Is it locked? Yes, it's locked. Everything's locked. But don't worry, I'll fix this. Where's the letter open? Oh, Jim, you'll ruin the desk. Well, I've got to get it open. There. Oh, your poor desk. You see, I knew I put it someplace. Is it the catalog? Well, not exactly. It's uh, it's the check I was supposed to deposit. Again, it's moments later in the white frame house on Maple Street, and only one of the Andersons' many problems has been resolved. Father, who always knows best, has taken care of the money situation. But it's Mother, the gentle soul, who takes care of the rest, like this. Jim, we've got to go about this thing logically. Now, where were you when you finished the catalog? Uh, in the kitchen. I wound up with the pots and pans. And then the phone rang. How do you know? Well, didn't it? 
Yes, but how... Dear, whenever you lose something, the telephone has always just rung. Well, uh, then what happened? It was Hector Smith, wasn't it? Yes, but I still don't You see... and Hector made a poker date. You had to make a few notes, didn't you? That's right. I had to put down the address and the time... And you also put down the catalog. Well, I couldn't write with my hands full. Now, let's see. What handy spot would be the most illogical place for you to put it? I put it right on the telephone table. And then it disappeared. Betty! Yes, Mother? Look on top of the valance over the hall window. Margaret, you know that's ridiculous. Who in his right mind would stick a book away on top of a window valance? You would. <laughs> I certainly would not. Mother? Yes, Betty? I found the catalog. <laughs> on top of the valance? That's right. Thank you, Betty. Okay, <laughs> Well, I, uh, guess everything's all straightened out now. Not quite, dear, but it will be. As soon as we put everything back where it was in the beginning. again next week when we'll be back with Father Knows Best, starring Robert Young as Jim Anderson, with Roy Bargey and the Maxwell House Orchestra, and yours truly, Bill Foreman. So until next Thursday, good night and good luck from the makers of Maxwell House, America's favorite brand of coffee. Always good to the last drop. Father Knows Best was transcribed in Hollywood and written by Ed James. Now stay tuned in for Dragnet, which follows immediately over most of these stations. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you'll join me next week as I share more gems from the golden age of radio. Thanks to Joel Schoenwell for technical support. The executive producer of Theater of the Mind is Moses Neimer. I'm Frank Proctor. Have a wonderful weekend. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.